So if you've been around at all in the last couple months, you recognize I look a little different here. You know, I can, I can return to knowing how to dance badly. You know, it's a, it's, it's a whole new me. Truth be told, having that boot and that cane that actually I was wearing for, I think it was nine weeks or so, wasn't all that bad. There were only a few times really I chafed. I mean, relearning how to drive, that took, uh, actually my brakes have paid for it. I need, to, I need to get them in place now. But there was really only one other time where I really, really noticed it. And that was um, just a week and a half ago, just a few days before I uh, was released, so to speak. I was uh, flying back and forth to, uh, to Chicago for an academic conference to which I was invited and it wasn't the flight back. Friday afternoon, Chicago commuter traffic, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, not a relaxing place to be. And I am not the most chill traveler. <laughs> Going through security, that boots, they wanted to make sure I didn't have some kind of bomb or, you know, hashish or something. So, that, I mean, they wiped down every single thing to run it through the scanner just to make sure I wasn't having kind of contraband in there. And uh, then I got to the uh, got to the gate. And it was this tiny little boarding area that by less than half did it have the amount of chairs that they needed. And because the sun was starting to go down and the other like I said a lot of people doing business commuting, you know, there started to be this this energy because it started to snow as well too. And people started to say, you know, is this plane really going to get off? And actually the plane coming in from Philadelphia got there on time. And, you know, they got on the intercom and said, well, we'll begin boarding in about 15 minutes or so. And you could feel the energy around the boarding area start to change and shift. People started to edge just a little bit closer. People were staking out their territory. And then with about five minutes left to go, people stopped pretending. (laughs) There was this... um, was this guy, classic Chicago. He looked right out of the old uh, SNL thing, DeBears. Big guy. He came and he plopped himself right in the middle, right near the boarding gate and put his bag down. He was tough to get around. But I give a lot of credit to this really petite woman who sort of went right around him. And she found her place right up there, too. And then there was this uh, young businessman, too cool for words, hip kind of guy. He had shades on him. It was 5 o'clock at night and the sun was starting to set. And he had earbuds in and a really cool suit. And he found his way up there. And I think, you know... Person by person, they all did until you really couldn't see the gates or the boarding area. And I got to tell you, I am not, as I said, a chill traveler, but I knew that I had a uh, leg up, if you will, because I knew they would call my type first. You know, if you need help, I'd never been able to do this before. If you needed help, you know, to board the plane, you're going to be slow doing it. So I hung back. Normally, I would have been one right in there, you know, elbows all tense and tight. They would call my zone, my row, all that kind of stuff. And then they did call me. And I had to start, you know, I had bags over my shoulder and, you know, that clicking noise I make whenever my cane hit the ground. And most people, I mean, the the bear sky was an absolute sweetheart. He was really sorry that he was blocking my path when I said, excuse me. And the petite woman, she got right out of the way. And then, well, the cool guy, not so much. (laughs) The shades on and his earbuds in, he was effectively uh, blind and and deaf. So nothing seemed to really have an, an effect on him. Um, and I, excuse me, excuse me, and, and he wouldn't move. And, and finally, I was almost ready to, like, poke him with my cane a little bit so I could get on the airplane. And actually, one of the people off to the side who had moved all the way tapped him on the shoulder and said, move. <laughs> and he did, but not without a look on his face as if I had stolen from him his birthright to be there in that line 
and to get in that space. See, this little emotional system of being near the gates, it's a pretty nasty little emotional system. It brings out a lot of our territorial instincts, a lot of our baser instincts, a lot of, you know, if I win, you lose. And if you win, I'm going to lose in the sense of really staking our claim and not wanting to move. It's a bad system in a lot of ways, and it's not made much easier by, you know, the objective. I'm not saying he's a jerk, but the person who's acting like a jerk, that guy who just would not get out of his way. He was there for himself. He had staked out his claim. I've thought a lot about that little experience, the gate and in the boarding area, in this past week. And especially what we're all trying to wake up to in the wake of what happened in Arizona eight days ago. Many of us have been reflecting on what is our emotional system of how we talk about social issues and politics. And could we possibly do it better? Could we do it in a more healthy way? Could we do it in a way in which we don't seem to be staking out our turf and sometimes, if not physically, verbally going against people with whom we seem to disagree in a way of violence? I think a lot of us, including myself today and hopefully for a while more, will be asking ourselves this question. How can we in this emotional political system try to be the change that we seek in the world? Not just make that a cliche that goes up on our Facebook pages and sounds good, but actually be the change that we seek in this kind of toxic atmosphere. Last week, I used one of our images from our DNA, from our beliefs here at Wellsprings of abundance. And we have a particular image that we associate with abundance, which is a garden. For those of you who have green thumbs, I do not. But for those of you who do, you know it takes time and space to grow a garden. It isn't like making microwave popcorn. It isn't an instantaneous thing. So with a little bit more time and space away from eight days ago and what happened in Arizona... We have a little bit more room to breathe, hopefully a little bit more room to feel some of that sadness, maybe a little less of the fear and a little bit less of the anger. And so one of the things I believe here today is that we cannot draw a direct line from that toxic emotional political atmosphere to what happened in Arizona. Jared Lee Lochner, I think, is not John Wilkes Booth. He is Travis Bickle. Remember Taxi Driver? Any of you remember that film about... A sad, lonely, deranged person who had it in his mind that he had to assassinate a politician to establish his way or his path or his being in the world. There was no particular political agenda with that. We don't know a lot yet about Jared Lee Lochner. Maybe he was influenced in some ways by this toxic emotional political atmosphere, by this verbal violence that we've seen all around us these last few years. Maybe. That's the best we can say right now, maybe, we don't know. But I don't believe there is a direct line between someone telling him to do this and him doing it. But here's the thing also I believe this morning. That even if the atrocity in Arizona had never happened eight days ago, that the way that many of us, not all of us, but the ways that many of us have started to speak to each other and react against each other in this emotional political atmosphere of the last couple of years, it was unsustainably immature. It was going to break down under its own weight at some time. And it finally, it was not fitting as a true holding place for what real citizenship requires, which is not just making our viewpoint heard, but recognizing that other people have the same right as us and that the truth might especially come out if we give each other the unhurried, unrushed space to truly speak, but not just speak, to listen.
I've been thinking about that kind of jerky guy in line in front of me. Because I hope one of the things that has changed after Arizona is that we will start calling jerk behavior jerk behavior when we see it. Especially when it's on, quote unquote, our side of the political spectrum, whatever side of the political spectrum we have to be. That's what really counts. It's really easy to call out your opponent's asinine behavior. When you can call out your own side's asinine behavior, that's the change that I hope we would seek to be and to make in the world. And so I wanted to share with you just a few of the outrageous stories I've been spending some time with, unfortunately, this past week to really try and understand for myself more of this toxic emotional nature. Election night, perhaps some of you have seen this video, election night just this past, a guy named Representative Bob Filner, who represents a district in San Diego, had beaten his opponent, a Tea party back candidate, by 20 points, a pretty sound defeat. But trying to leave election headquarters, Bob Filner was surrounded by Nick Popovich, the candidate who had lost, and his supporters, I use that loosely, what it was, was a mob, yelling at the congressman, surrounding him, not allowing him to leave, yelling in his face, don't tread on me, Bob, don't tread on me, and a couple of them even calling out Jew. But it is on both sides. It is. Remember Joe Manchin, one senator, West Virginia, coal mining state, they got some energy issues. Well, his response to uh, environmental regulation that was proposed, cap and trade, a bunch of different names it goes by. Well, he put this in one of his ads. His response to, you know, instead of, you know, reasoning out, try to understand what's going on. In this 30-second ad, he put it up against a tree and he pulled out his rifle and he shot it. Perhaps this is the kind of thing that Sharon Angle was talking about when she was running for Senate in Nevada in terms of Second Amendment solutions. Instead of talking, instead of reasoning, instead of trying to understand, no, let's just feel really good about really being really angry about something we hate so much so that we want to do some violence to it. But I got to tell you that the absolute winner for the worst thing I heard all throughout this past, this past election season, didn't come from Sarah Palin's lips. Came from a Democratic congressman named Paul Konjorski, who used to represent a district up in Scranton. He was talking about a race that he had really no stake in. It was the governor's race in Florida. And a guy named Rick Scott was running. And Rick Scott had been in the insurance industry and had participated in some practices that many people found objectionable. Well, instead of saying, Representative Konjorski, that candidate Scott had done these objectionable things, this is what he said. Instead of running for governor of Florida, they ought to have him taken out and shoot him. Put him against the wall and shoot him. That is a Second Amendment solution, I suppose. Not really reasoned discourse or taking the time to think or taking the time to disagree in a meaningful way. And then I wanted to give you this final thing here. Our old friend Rush Limbaugh, a little ad that went up, as some of you might have known, in Tucson in the weeks before the shooting. Rush Limbaugh, straight shooter, bullet mark, bullet mark, bullet hole, bullet hole. Now, actually, Rush Limbaugh didn't approve this, and I think that's worse. Because <laughs> the people who invested the time in terms of, you know, thousands of dollars it took to place this ad up, perhaps knew their audience well enough that they said, we got to appeal to the base level. <laughs> 
We've got to appeal to the gut instinct. We've got to appeal to the fact that it's not about talk. It's about violence. It's about leaving our mark on the world. So all these things I just listed, and by the way, I left out 20 of them that I had originally put together. It's just in the atmosphere, and it's part of how we have been relating to each other. These are not exceptions. They may not be the rule, but they're not exceptions. All of these provocative signs, actions, words, they are representative of an instinctual, really base instinctual need to have to get our idea or our presence out there. Much like that guy who was just standing in his way and he was not going to let it go and not going to let someone else by without a fight. These emotional systems, unhealthy ones, are designed to appeal to, and we all have it, it's part of our brainstem, the little reptilian part of ourselves that is the oldest part of who we are. Millions of years old, the part of our brain that thinks only with anger, that thinks only with fear, and that says, my ability to get mine is your ability not to get yours. So much of our political atmosphere, our emotional way of talking about things that really do matter has become about not just lowest common denominator, basement garbage way of talking to each other. If, like me this morning, you are wondering about a way that there might be forward from this, how do we go about being part of the solution? Part of it is to recognize that solution is already going on. There's a, a blogger at the um, American Prospect magazine, a progressive magazine, and without minimizing any of the horror of what happened in Arizona, he said, you know what? At least no one in the mainstream, right or left, of the American political system was trying to justify the shooting. People were arguing back and forth about what it meant and trying to win the spin cycle wars and all that, but no one actually justified it. He said there was a time in American political history that wouldn't have been so. Just 40, 50 years ago, just a little bit older than I am, there was terrorist racial violence all throughout this nation. And when some of those people were caught, including one who killed Reverend James Reeb, a minister about my age serving the All Souls Church in Washington, D.C. in the 1960s, who left his pulpit to go down and to strive along with Dr. King for equal rights for all Americans, beaten to death with a baseball bat, when people who committed these crimes sometimes were taken to court. It was a mock court. The state and the whole apparatus of it said, we do not take these crimes seriously. Reaching back even a little bit more, in 1856, perhaps some of you remember this story, it's kind of an odd one, when a senator was beaten to an inch of his life by a member of the House of Representatives because of perceived insult, beaten in the very Congress itself. Beaten unconscious and bloody. While the guy who was doing the beating had some friends, another representative, who was holding at bay with a gun the people who were trying to come to the rescue of the person who lay unconscious on the floor of the Senate. Our response has at least been a little bit better this time. Progress is going on. I do believe with what Dr. King said, that the arc of the universe is long and it bends in the direction of justice. But sometimes we don't see it. Just like I'm looking out from here right now, I look straight ahead and things just appear basically kind of flat. Sometimes that arc that bends in the universe is imperceptibly slow or small. And we think, what good will my actions do to contribute to it? But I believe that now, more than ever, after Arizona, is the time to have the faith that even though we don't see it, it is still real and our 
actions, words, deeds matter in terms of continuing to bend that arc in the direction of justice. But it is only meaningful every day, even if it's in very small ways. And actually, I believe starting in small and slow ways is the best way to do it. This past week, I read a quote from the wonderfully insightful Buddhist nun Pima Chodron. And she said, we do not set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. It is in that space that we don't just move from our instinct, especially if it's based in anger or violence, into the action. We learn, and this is being the change that we would hope to see in the world, to hold open that space between instinct and action and to come to a deeper understanding in that place called insight. Understanding what our true motivations are. Do we speak only for ourselves? And even when we speak against someone else, are we holding their understanding of their dignity in our hearts? Between our instincts and our actions, we can come to grow into that true, deep way. And this isn't just about politics. This is about everything else in our lives so that we can have true insight. One of the reasons why I am called to do what I do and believe so fervently in the transformative power of living a spiritual life, of asking ourselves on a regular basis, do we understand our motivations? It's not just about the actions, it's about who we are in our hearts, is that unfortunately I also understand what it's like for my 20 years of active alcoholism to be driven by nothing but instinct, a fear and of anger. And of resentment that even on the outside, if you couldn't see that, that's what was swirling around in here. And one of the other reasons I also believe so firmly in the spiritual nature, the ultimate spiritual nature of reality is that when we answer with our baser instincts, we end up paying for it. I have 20 years, hundreds, if not over a thousand of days waking up the next morning saying, oh, my God, what the hell did I do? What the hell did I say? Who was I mean to who didn't deserve it? Who did I not honor who deserved it? When we go on any of these kinds of binges, and a binge is just that place where we give in to our instinct and don't take time to think about it before we act. If we don't open up that space, we create so much harm very often for ourselves and for other people. It's true also on the positive side when we have inspirations. I am a person of constant, almost unrelenting enthusiasms. That's not easy sometimes. I mean, I came up for the whole frame in my head with this message, Monday morning, 10 o'clock in the shower. It's easy to have inspirations. Following through on those inspirations, allowing them time to season and savor them and allow them to mature, that is that place, that open space, that contemplative space which starts tomorrow night, by the way, at our office, of shaping and sharing our hearts in a true way. Rather than always seeking for excitement, we put that aside for a time and we develop insight. This past week I heard a great example, especially in the political realm, of what it is when we go right from insight to action without thinking first. A friend of a friend of a friend. I wish I had it. It wasn't sent to me. They told me about it. I would put a screenshot of it right here because I think it's such a beautiful 
unfortunate counterexample. So someone posted, this friend of a friend of a friend posted something about how there's, I guess, some move. Again, I don't even know if this is true or not, but it was posted on Facebook, so we're going to go with that reality. <laughs> that there was some kind of move towards um, nationalizing a, a sign-in form for the Internet. You know, that a nationalized, standardized form to, to uh, you know, so we could know who's going on the Internet. I think this is one of the worst ideas I think I've ever heard of. Again, I don't know whether it's true or not about in terms of privacy and how it would affect technological innovation. And it sounds like something that a dictatorial regime like China would do. There's all kinds of reasons to ask questions about, is this really real? And my God, you know, what an awful idea. But this friend of a friend of a friend reported back to the friend who eventually connected to me and said one of the responses that they got back was this. And this is what happens when we leap from instinct to action without thinking. One person wrote down the commenters on the Facebook page. This is just another example, another example of the communist conspiracy that this administration is trying to foist upon all of us in this country to end our American liberties. Yes, WTF, fill that in as you wish. Yes. Leaping from the instinct, the feeling, hey, there's not something right here. Instead of asking the question, going right to the worst case scenario assertion that we can think of. But you know what? We all have the tendency to do that sometimes. We need, if we are going to change this emotional system in our society, to check ourselves first and foremost to really understand not just are we speaking the truth, but are we speaking the truth in such a way that we know we're allowing other people to hear it. This contemplative space is not just something we do in spiritual practice. It is something when we truly build it, we bring it out into every avenue of our lives. And we allow ourselves to bless other people and us through it. Part of the confusion, I think, of this time in America is that a lot of folks have become to believe that passion is enough. If I really, really, really... Really, 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 really care about something, then that's making my argument. It is not. It's just really, 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 really caring about something. Passion is necessary, but it's not the whole thing. Very often here at Wellsprings, I don't mention this next word because I'm not a real fan of it and there's other ways to talk about it. The word is sin. Too often in this spiritual atmosphere in which we live in the world, sin is about being born as an inherently depraved person, which our tradition rejects. Or sin is applied to certain people who love other people in the ways that mainstream, quote unquote, folks think is a bad thing. It's one of the reasons I stay away from sin. But I'm going to share with you my favorite understanding of sin that makes sense and I think helps us understand why it is that this inflamed passion can be so damaging. It's Augustine. It is almost 2,000 years old now. He said that his definition of sin is loving poorly. He called it, and the translation from the Latin is disordered loving. It's all right to love our cars. However, if we walk out in the mall parking lot and someone has accidentally scratched us and we fall to pieces and we square a blood oath against the person who has damaged our most sacred property that would be disordered loving an example of it it also happens closer to our hearts 
when we love someone or something so much that has more value, I think, than an automobile, more inherent value, but we allowed it or them to crowd out the fact that we are also called to care not just about one portion of reality, but as much as we can to open our hearts to a deeper and bigger reality. When this natural instinct, good natural instincts for self-preservation or for comfort, don't let us grow, then we know what it is to have disordered loves. We know what it is not just to feel really strongly, but to go deeper into that better question. Yes, I'm feeling this instinct, but is it right for where I am? And if it is, what is a fitting way that I can express that that expresses the insight of who I truly want to be? And it is not just a reflection of anger or rage or resentment. A lot of which, by the way, I'm going to be honest, I have felt a lot of those emotions in the last week. Especially spending time with all those political stories I was just telling you before. It's real tough to spend time with those things and not feel really, really angry. But what I also try to keep in mind is insight that I have learned from others. Some of you know the name Dr. Andrew Newberg, who I've talked about before from this pulpit. And he studies the physiology and the neurology of people in deep spiritual states. Now, the thing is, he says, in our brains, our brains don't judge doctrine according to true or false. He doesn't have that in mind. He's not trying to say this doctrine is true versus that doctrine is true. He's trying to see how people optimize our true gifts and our true nature, I believe, through cultivating that through spiritual practice. He says there is only one form of spiritual or religious life that actually does us damage, that actually damages our hearts, literally, metaphorically, physiologically, neurologically. The one form of religion that he says is bad for us is anger-based religion. Religion that is based over and over and over again in resentments or in judgments, judgments of the self, judgments of other people. He says that kind of religion we are not hardwired for. It is actually something that is truly negative for us. Now, at the same time, I just said I felt a lot of anger this week. And so it was very much a grace note when late, I think it was Monday or Tuesday night, I was watching one of the movie channels and Milk came on. Have you seen that, Milk? The Sean Penn movie that dramatizes the life of Harvey Milk, who, like Dr. King, was martyred because of his belief in equality. Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay American to be elected to political office, who was killed by his fellow supervisor, Dan White. And Dan White got off of it for manslaughter, said a murder because of the Twinkie defense. Look it up and read it if you don't know about it. It is absolutely gobsmacking. Harvey Milk, early in his career, understandably, was angry. Angry because the people he represented had no legal standing when they were murdered. No legal standing for who they loved or how they loved or for the people they loved. And one of Harvey Milk's first opponents in a Democratic primary, he was a friend to Harvey Milk in many ways. He ended up defeating him. He said, Harvey, you're angry all the time. You have to also give people hope hope is that open space in which we use that anger for a beneficial purpose so that other people and ourselves are able to grow this is what and how i think we can move forward best from our own unitarian tradition come one of the best 
teachings, one of the most world-altering teachings, a little essay, not very long, by Henry David Thoreau called Civil Disobedience, which is how we oppose that which is unjust without becoming unjust ourselves. How do we oppose that which truly defeats and demeans the human spirit without becoming defeatist ourselves? How can we show up and be forces for agents and peace and truth and kindness without violating everything that we care about? This idea changed the world. Both Gandhi and Dr. King read this work early in their ministries, and it helped them to form how they would shape their peaceful revolutions. That is what Gandhi called that satyagraha, that open space of insight into which not just anger could be there when it was necessary, but also love could spill forth as well. And this brings me... Arizona and the best ways that I can think of to honor those who are the dead and the wounded. It is so easy to focus just on their deaths or on the violence, but that's really easy to turn them into symbols and symbols. They get a year commemoration. We go and we place flowers, but that is not sufficient. I think their lives are worth so much more than just a commemoration or winning a news cycle. I want to show you some of these people. Gabe Zimmerman, perhaps you know a little bit about him. The congresswoman's outreach coordinator who set up that Congress on your corner thing, studying for a master of social work. There's a recall about Gabe that the last time he was in Washington a couple years ago for the inauguration. He had to read every word of Lincoln's holy writs, the Gettysburg Address, even though it was Incredibly cold temperatures because he really wanted to understand Lincoln's legacy to us. That was Gabe Zimmerman's life and his aspirations. Dorwin Stoddard died shielding his wife. She was hit, but she lived. Died shielding his wife, maybe. They fell in love as teenagers. And they went off and they had separate lives. And both their spouses died. And they found each other again later in life and built a life. And they were just out on a Saturday for coffee, go to a cafeteria, and maybe his wife wanted to stop by and tell the congresswoman that she was doing a great job. That is Dorwin Stoddard's story. Not what he died for, but what he counted as most important in life, that there was something stronger than his fear of death. And, of course, Representative Gabby Giffords, not much needs to be said about her, but maybe this hope that, of course, she continues to show this miraculous progress because I believe from everything I have come to learn about who she was before the accident, she is the exact kind of right person to lead us beyond the accident, that she has the right kind of aspirations because she is not really into scoring cheap political points, but will be the kind of person who will not just be healed in body, but might show us a deeper different, better way of learning to talk to each other when we disagree. And then finally, Christian Taylor Green, a baby of 9-11, whose life was bookended by horrendous violence. 
and who lived nine years in between, active and vibrant and loving, from such of the kind of family, and perhaps you know about this already, that her organs were donated after she died and another child was able to live. She was there because she had been elected to her first office and she wanted to meet Representative Giffords to see what it might be like to aspire to serve in that way. This is not about what these people died for. It is about what they lived for and what one of them hopefully will continue to live for. I ask in time to come that we not, certainly not forget them, but we just don't remember their deaths because reducing a life to a symbol is robbing it of life. Instead, let's try and keep their aspirations before us to remember every day that our hearts could break, as I see on so many of your faces right now, because their lives were of such value. That value does not end. In that remembrance, we can recall what Dr. King encouraged all of his people to do at one of the most difficult hours of the civil rights movement. Remember that there is something stronger. The insight called, he said, the strength to love. Deeper and bigger than anger. Deeper and bigger and more powerful even than hate. This strength of love opens in us the deepest, most wonderful view in life. And I'll end with this. Reinhold Niebuhr, who some of you know, authored the Serenity Prayer, wrote these words at a difficult time when he was writing to other people. He said, nothing that is worth doing can ever be finalized in our lifetime. Therefore, we are saved by hope. Nothing that we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone Therefore, we are saved by love. None of our virtuous acts is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend and especially our foe as it is as virtuous from our own standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. May we have that ability to forgive life for its slights and its atrocities, and for all that which bruises our hearts. May we have the ability to forgive those who act in such a way that they call forth our base instincts. May we forgive ourselves when we respond on the basis of that instinct and not of love, and on the basis of that deep, loving forgiveness, begin again on this day. Amen. And may you live in blessing.